Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. You know, people love mysteries. All people love mysteries. People, especially, I think it's in human nature, we love it when someone's hiding a secret from someone else. We want to know what it is. Uh, How many of you guys have ever seen a classified document that the government has released, and on that document, there's all these black marks over it, right? We call it a redacted document. I'm not preaching about the news, <laughs> all right? I'm just saying, uh, this is one of the, here's one, for example. This is going back to the 1950s. I'm not expecting any of y'all to read it, but look at all the blacked out stuff there, right? Uh, this is for the public finally to get their hands on, but there's a bunch of stuff hidden. And isn't it human nature to want to know what's underneath? We want to know what's hiding there. We want to kind of get, oh, what, what were they saying? Who is it about? Private things are, are hidden. Well, whether it's about a political scandal, or in this case, a, a government program, or if it's about alien spacecraft, <laughs> whatever it is, people want to know the truth, the whole truth. Now, the Bible is the exact opposite of a redacted document. The Bible has been wide open to the world to be criticized and analyzed and poured over. And uh, the Bible is, you can look down to the original languages, down to every single letter. It has been the most totally declassified document in all of human history history. Think about that. No other book in all of human history has been subject to more thorough analysis than the Bible. It's still the book that every year is going to outsell every other book at Walmart. Think about that. Since uh, the middle of the 15th century, where the Bible was the first book printed by the movable type printing press by Gutenberg, No other book in human history has been outprinted or outsold the Bible. It has been studied in every language that books have been translated into. It's the first. It's an amazing thing. Now, think about uh, the epistles of Peter. Within the Bible, you've got uh, 66 books. You've got two very, very small epistles that fill just eight chapters of the Bible, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you uh, those pages here. Uh, Just have a look. This is, I'm not expecting you all to read it, or this is not your eye exam. (laughs) Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, that's 1 Peter. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, there's 2 Peter, okay? In your Bibles, it's eight pages in the Bible. All right, are you with me? I mean, that's it. And I want you to think about this. In 2 Peter uh, 1, verse 19, let's see, it's probably somewhere right in there, <laughs> right? In 2 Peter 1, 19, uh, we read this. He exhorts us with these words. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I'd like you to consider today's message around the theme of a lamp shining in a dark place. I want you to think about this. Let me ask you a couple honest questions. Number one, do you really believe that we live in a dark world? Yeah, 
Yes, sir. It's not like it used to be back in the 1950s, Pastor. I'm not asking you that. Do you believe that we live in a sin-sick world and always have? I mean, do you really believe that? Because if you believe that and it's very dark, you are wanting light. Now, I think a lot of us think we believe that, but we don't really believe that. We all nod and, mm-hmm, pastor, yeah, amen, on Sunday. And then what do we do? We just go out to the ball field for the rest of the week, and we go out to work, and we sort of, yeah, we sort of moderate that. And then we go, oh, amen, come back on Sunday. Well, that's just faking it. That's not, do you really believe we live in a dark world? If you do, I'm not saying uh, that the world is without beauty. We saw a gorgeous sunrise this morning coming into church. It was beautiful. The world is not without beauty. I'm not saying there's no cheer in living a full life. Uh, What I'm saying is that the question is this, do you see sin for what it is? Are you agreed with God about how terrible sin is? Are you agreed with God with what he has said about sin? That's the question when we talk about a dark world. Second question, do you really believe that the scripture is a lamp shining in a dark place? Or do you believe that there's other lights, you know, your own reason? You know, I look at nature, pastor. I feel close to God in nature. Oh, that's good. But do you believe that scripture is a lamp shining in a dark place or not? That's the question I want to lay before you. And pastor has said, uh, last week his message was this. This was his title slide. Knowing God's word is essential. And you know what? We all went, mm-hmm, oh, that was, a good, that was a good message. Okay, praise the Lord. And it was a fantastic message. But my question is, has that changed your life? Has that gotten a hold of you? And I'm concerned that a lot of us spend decades and decades coming to church, and yet none of us are ready to stand and deliver on our understanding of God's word. Just for example, if I were to ask someone here to stand up and why don't you just finish the sermon today? It's been a big week. You know, I'm the only pastor. I just got buzzed. My kids, you know, monkeying around down in the, in the kids' thing. I'm going to have to, someone just stand up and deliver, right? Just take 10 minutes. How many of you would feel competent after 30, 40 years in church to stand and open God's word and preach? Now, I realize that preaching is a specific kind of a thing that's called upon, but I challenge you. I think a lot of times we're bystanders. We sit in church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not what God's calling y'all to, folks. He's calling your hearts to be changed and transformed, and the fundamental place where that starts is in getting into God's word. And this is huge. We've got to understand this. We can't merely pass through. This truth has to pass through you. Well, all right, let's let's go easier on you. How well do you think Peter knew God's word? Right? Here's the dude who's a fisherman, right? He's in the back 40 up in Galilee. They even had a wacky accent. Some of y'all have a wacky accent. (laughs) Right? I mean, Peter was just, you know, he's just a fisherman. And uh, and, and he spends three and a half years with Jesus, and his life is radically transformed. Jesus says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. How well do you think Peter knew his Bible? How about this? Where did Peter go when he gave his speech at Pentecost? Did you know Peter gave the speech in Pentecost? Where'd he go? Where did Peter stand and deliver? From the book of Joel. How many of you could stand and deliver a word on the book of Joel? And then he goes to Psalm 16. How many of you would be able to open up Psalm 16 and walk us through the Christological implication of Psalm 16? He goes to Psalm 110. How many of you would understand, oh, Psalm 110, of course, that's a messianic psalm. 
It's very important that we understand Peter knew God's word. All right, here, let me, you'll, you'll love this. What if we took first and second Peter, right? Those eight pages. And what I did is I redacted all the other scripture references. I, I did this today. This is, a, this is a fantastic graphic. It's a once in a lifetime for y'all here. You ready? Watch this. I'm so excited about this. Look at this. I've blacked out all the places where Peter quotes from other scriptures. Think about this. That's chapter one of first Peter. Chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. Did Peter know his Bible? Second Peter, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Is that overwhelming? Listen, Peter quotes from over 27 separate passages of scripture covering at least 13 different books of the Bible in eight pages. Did you know that? Now, if you have great study Bible with, with great footnotes, you can find a number of these things. My challenge to us today is very simple. Folks, we need to take seriously this charge that knowing God's word is essential. And I want Peter to be our guide. He's going to walk us into this and show us this. What I've done is I've selected uh, a passage from each of these chapters to unfold for us this morning. And so I invite you to turn to 1 Peter we're going to look at 1 Peter, and here's what you can do. If you feel very athletic this morning, you've had your coffee, you can flip back and forth between the Old Testament and 1 Peter, okay? You've got to have a really good index finger that can kind of hold its place and go back and forth. If you don't feel like doing that, then what you can do is you can stay in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and if you like to write in your Bible or underline or highlight, you can do that. If you write marginal notes, you can do that. Your sermon notes today can be to take the passage in each of these chapters and to indicate what Old Testament passage is citing and what he's doing with it, okay? Now, we're going to come back around to this question of how well do you know God's word, because that's the principal question. And let me say something before I do this. Folks, my job as a pastor, and I got to say this a thousand times, I'm going to say it on two accounts, right? As your worship pastor, my job is not to worship for you. You get that? My job as a pastor preaching God's word is not to know God's word for you. That is your job. My job is to equip you to do the work of ministry, to lead you in worship, to lead you into God's word. I've sat here for three years and I watched some of you come and go and I wondered, do you ever open a Bible? I love y'all, but seriously, I long to be in a place where you come because you are already full of a desire to worship God. You have spent time in God's word and in prayer daily and you're filled with this zeal of God and you want to come together and encourage one another and gather with like-minded believers. That's what the church should be. If your worship is quenched, it's because that is not happening. You do not hire a pastor to be a professional. You hire the pastor to equip you. That's what Peter's doing. When Peter says, remember, this is what he's calling us to. Now, here we go. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's written these two short letters, two epistles. And one of the big things he's calling the church to is to holiness. And he says in 1 Peter 1, 15, in this call to holiness, to prepare our minds for action. Look at verse, uh, I'll pick it up there in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, this quotation, this first one that he draws from, is from the book of Leviticus. Here's a book that most people uh, have barely made it through in the church. You get to Leviticus, and you're like, oh, boy, this is going to be complicated. It's Old Testament law. No, Peter's like, you need to know this. And he's writing to the church, not just to Old Testament Jews. He's writing to us. See, you need to know this. God calls us to holiness. In Leviticus... Uh, chapter 19, uh, I'm going to turn to my Bible. If you're a turner, you can turn there, but you've got to have that good hold. <laughs> We're going to come back. Leviticus chapter 19. Look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uh, that's the, the charge. And then he describes what that should look like. He describes how families should honor and should revere one another. And then most importantly, he lays out these instructions concerning your neighbor. How being holy means that you should love your neighbor. Look at what he, he says there uh, down in verse 13 of Leviticus 19. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge because the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There is where in the New Testament, when they were trying to synthesize, what are the, the, the simple essence of the law? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's where it's drawn from. It's a chapter about holiness. There's no other book of the Bible more devoted to holiness. Holiness is being set apart for God, devoted to God. And Peter is saying in 1 Peter, you need to be holy. You used to be conformed to other passions, but are you set apart to God? Now, I have a question. Are you set apart to God? Do you listen to God? Are, is your life set apart to him or is it set apart to something else? We need to allow this to challenge us. Really, I think we are people who can so easily be led astray. Look at chapter uh, 2 here. Uh, this is in 1 Peter again. Come back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here, Peter is going to argue that the entire church is attached to and built on the cornerstone of Christ. So this is a fascinating passage that I think a lot of us usually look at in a little bit different light than Peter means it. He quotes uh, from Psalm 18, 118, I'm sorry, and he also quotes from Isaiah 28. 
I'll just read this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that is a quote from Scripture. You see how Peter just embeds it and, and sort of presumes that you're, you're grasping the fact that this is Scripture. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, here's Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Oh, oh, amen, pastor. Oh, that's good. Great. Have you ever looked at Isaiah 28? Do you have any idea what he's saying there? Come back to Isaiah 28. This is pretty intriguing. If you can find Isaiah, (laughs) Isaiah comes before Jeremiah. Isaiah 28. Starting in verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and a hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. Waters will overwhelm the shelter. This is a passage about God's judgment on people who trusted in something other than him. It's a passage of deep judgment. God is going to crush this sinful people. So what's this bit about a cornerstone? is referring to Christ. He's referring to the stone upon which an entire structure is built. So you have an entire temple that's being built on this one stone. And what God is saying is that when the storm of my wrath comes to judge you, it will not knock that over. You know, we think about God being our refuge. Almighty fortress is our God. Do you ever think that one of the things God's fortress is a refuge against? is his wrath. That's what the scripture tells us, is that God's wrath will burn against the ungodly. And that Christ is the cornerstone that supports a structure that will not be shaken. Come back through and read that again. I am laying in Zion a stone, Christ, a chosen a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and here he comes back to Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Folks, our hope that Peter is pointing to is in Christ. This church is called Cornerstone Baptist Church. And it's called Cornerstone because of Christ. The world has rejected him. God has approved of Christ. Peter pulls that out of Isaiah, out of Psalm 118. Let's look at another one Uh, here. This is from chapter 3. Here's a very obscure one. I wanted to show you how carefully Peter reads his Bible. In this passage, uh, he's he's warning, uh, he's, He's calling rather for 
deep humility among all Christians, and then he breaks it up specifically. He talks about humility with respect to rulers and authorities, and then here, within the family, humility between husbands and wives. And he pulls this really strange quote out. He's talking here about wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter is a married man. One of the things the Bible makes very clear, one of the first miracles in Mark, early miracles, is that Christ heals Peter's mother-in-law. Peter's a married man, all right? So none of this nonsense about popes and not being able to marry, that is all human tradition. Now, Peter is a married man, and Peter is a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He has to do pastoral counseling with married couples all the time, and he sees that sometimes a wife is a genuine believer, and her husband is not, or is not, his heart is like stone, and vice versa. Sometimes a husband is a genuine believer, and his wife is not. And so Peter's counseling here. You need to be humble in that context. He tells the women, don't let your adorning be the external braiding your hair, putting on gold jewelry, clothing you wear. Now, some people have gone just totally off the wall. And so now, oh, we have to dress ourselves a certain way. That's not Peter's point. His point is, rather than allowing the external to be the thing that you look at and people look at, let it be your heart, because that's where he goes. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then what does he do? He takes us back to this weird place in Genesis 18. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, you've got to see this. Turn in your Bible to this. This is fascinating. Genesis 18, verse 12. You've just got to understand this. Genesis 18, verse 12. I'll start in verse 9. The Christ, or rather, um, God has, has come with several angels. Uh, Abraham has welcomed them and, and fed them, and, and uh, they're, they're on their way, actually, to go and judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, it, 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 they have a meal, and in uh, verse 9 of Genesis 18, they say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? He said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. Now, I mean, if you've heard this passage preached, I, I, how many times has someone pulled out of this passage that, that she called him Lord? It's in the middle of her saying, laughing, my husband is old. <laughs> <laughs> and so my, I mean, she's, look at that. Look at verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, she's like, I'm old, I'm worn out. My Lord is old. That's fascinating. Because what we see is that Peter grabs that point and he says, ah, yet still she has such respect for him. She addresses him with that descriptor of respect and calls him Lord. Wow. 
I mean, Sarah and Abraham did not have an awesome marriage. They had issues. I mean, just read Genesis. They had lots of issues. And yet she still respected him. And that's Peter's point here. See, I don't think that we really read our Bible carefully. I'm persuaded we have a Sunday school level understanding of the Bible. That most of us have gone through, we have these little flannel graph pictures in our mind. One of the best things for me, by the way, was going to Israel and having a jet ski go blasting by the dock I was standing on at the Sea of Galilee. Totally shattered all my flannel graph understandings of the Bible. It was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because it made me realize this is a real lake. This is a real lake. This is not something in a Sunday school story. This is a real place. And yes, people jet ski on the Sea of Galilee. And it is where Jesus walked. That demythology of all of this. We have got to move forward, church. Peter moved forward. He understood. Look at even this tiny detail in God's word. And it preaches. I I, I think that's amazing. Peter picked up that tiny gemstone in the middle of an otherwise totally different story. All right. I could go on and on. Can you tell I could get lost if I'm not careful? And it's so exciting. All right, look at the next chapter. Uh, the next chapter is uh, chapter 4 of 1 Peter. <clears throat> and Peter here is going to warn that God's judgment of righteous holiness begins with his own people and in his own house. So if you're coming back to 1 Peter chapter 4, just look at verses 17 and 18. This is interesting. Uh, I'll start with 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Wow. Okay, so... Peter knows his Bible. He knows his Old Testament so much better than we do. It should put us to shame. We should be able to pull out of Ezekiel chapter 9 this reference. So come back to Ezekiel. I'm really making you turn here. I know I've gone through way too many more than my legal number of flips. (laughs) All right. But here Peter is pulling out Ezekiel 9 verses 3 through 8. But the whole chapter of Ezekiel is a chapter where, okay, so the people of God have Uh, they've just become totally complicit with sin. And people are just boldly sinning in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, and look at uh, Ezekiel 9, verse 1. He cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city. And with his destroying weapon in his hand, and six men came from the direction of the upper gate with faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with him was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. This is speaking about in the temple, the bronze altar. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. Let me ask you a question. Do you sigh and groan over evil? Or do you just get on Facebook and whine? Does it grieve you? Does it make your blood boil? Do your 
bones ache because of evil? Or yeah, just like a frog in a pot that's warming up. God wants us to grieve over evil. And he says, look, I want you to go around and put a mark on the forehead of those people who are so grieved at evil, they can't bear it. Put a mark on them. And then what happens? Verse 5, and to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Begin here, where people should be holy. You begin here, in the house of God. Wow. That's terrifying. I don't know about you. God says, I want us to begin here. For holiness to start in my sanctuary, in my house. That's what God wants. And that's what Peter brings out. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's overwhelming. Look, we should have some fear and trembling as we gather together. For our God is holy. And he wants us to dwell and live in holiness We've got to move quickly along. If we look at chapter 5, Peter makes another powerful appeal for humility. In chapter 5, uh, after going into another reference about the shepherds in Ezekiel 34, he says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace, grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This comes from Proverbs 3.34. He just remembers this proverb for us, just embedded right into his writing. I mean, think about all of these Old Testament passages Peter is littered with. Listen, we live in a time where there are certain teachers, pastors are going to get into false teachers here in the next chapter of 2 Peter. We're living in a time where there's false teachers who want to unhitch and separate the Old Testament from the New. Yeah, good luck with that. Can you possibly separate the Old Testament from the New? You cannot. None of the apostles did. Jesus said to Satan, it is written. He said to the teachers of the day, have you not read? Wow, you can't unhitch those two. It's so important that we understand God's word speaks this powerful and passionate word all the way through calling us to holiness and here calling us to humility. Humility. You know, there's a lot of false humility out there. You know, and a lot of times false humility can masquerade itself as a kind of humility when in fact it's a kind of pride. Let me give you an example. Well, pastor, you know, you, you just done a great job doing all that there, reading and thinking. That's, that's great. I just, I just kind of walk my life and live for the Lord and just do, and I don't know much about the Bible. Hey, knock, knock. Guess what? God calls a million people out of slavery in Egypt, illiterate. Guess what he gives them? A book. Guess what he tells them to learn? The book. Guess what he tells them to teach their children? The book. That is not humility that says, oh, shucks, pastor. That is pride that says, I am too lazy to get into my Bible. Now, listen, if I'm stinging you a little bit, it's because I love you with all my heart, church. 
Because God loves the word he's inspired. And his spirit wants you to be there. He doesn't want you to know more about soccer than you know about his word. He doesn't want you to know more about any sport than you know about his word. God doesn't want you to know more about your business than about his word. Your hobbies than his word. God wants you to know him. If you boast in anything, boast that you know him. Not me know it. You know it. That's what God's calling us to as a church, to grow in that, to know. Do you really believe pastor's message, knowing God's word is essential? Do you believe it? Then at least move in the direction that Peter moved, church. Know God's word. Study it. Pour over it. At least read it cover to cover. I don't understand how people can spend decades and decades in church and never read God's word cover to cover. There are people who are in prison camps who save pages of the Bible that have been washed down a latrine and, and wipe them off so they can have pages of the Bible. Have you not heard these things? Don't you know people are losing their lives because they're smuggling Bibles into places where it's not allowed? They die for God's word. And our Bibles sit on our shelf day after day after day after day. Why? What are you distracted with? That's for God to work on your heart with. We need to know it, to love him enough to know it. In 1 Peter, Peter, what pastor preached last week, walks us through a quotation from Matthew 17. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. Here, Peter is telling us a passage that, oh, we should all understand. We should all have been there. We should understand that this is a story that his readers had already heard because he's just glossing over it. And then he brings us in chapter two to that lamp shining in a dark place. Pastor's gonna get here. I don't wanna steal his thunder, but I want you to think about this. Peter says, look, I experienced the transfiguration of God. I experienced this. I saw him in glory. I saw Moses I saw Elijah. Like, I, 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 I saw these. This is unbelievable. I've seen the most amazing thing. And yet, what does he say? Yeah, but my experience, <laughs> it's really not that important. What's important is you have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. And then chapter two, he goes into that lamp. And he says, look, in Genesis 6, you have the judgment of the world, the ancient world by the flood in Noah's day. And the flood was brought upon the world and Noah and his ark were saved. You've got the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God uh, turned to ashes, condemning them to extinction as an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. God's rescue of Lot. Now, listen, we need more than a mere Sunday school understanding of these things because Peter says, this is more profound than my experience of seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. These, this is more profound. It is, you want to see how the devil works. There is no passages of the Bible that are more acidly picked at than Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's flood. Think about that. I mean, nobody else wants to cut those things out of the Bible. The critics nowadays, they want to cut these things out. And later on, guess what else? He says in the same chapter, he talks about, about Balaam and his talking donkey. He spoke with a human voice. You want to cut these things out? These are not children's stories. Peter is saying, this is the lamp shining in a dark place. You need to pay attention to it. 
So what do we do with this? Okay, Pastor, you just, oh man, you just gone off on us here. What do we do with this? Listen, here's my passion, my, my heart for us as God's people. And I'll close with these thoughts, just some summary thoughts. My heart for you is for you to understand that God is calling you to love him by listening. Ecclesiastes tells us that come to the house of God, draw near to listen. We need to draw near to listen. Uh, Secondly, I I want you to understand that this is something that should not merely happen on Sundays. We have a wonderful pastor who preaches God's word faithfully, chapter by chapter, book by book. It is not for us to snooze through. It's not for us to sit around and dream of other things. No, this is the food that God has said to pastors, feed this to the flock. Remember, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. This is the food. The thing a pastor can't do is the pastor can't eat that food for you. Something that you need to do. This is what God wants you to do. Some of you love your experiences. I have a wonderful private experience life with God. And I want to say, "Mm, okay, the Holy Spirit has given his word. Nothing, Peter says, nothing is more profound than that. If you tell me that you love God so much that you don't have time to be in his word, I don't believe you. I don't. And can I tell you, it's, it's okay for us to need to grow in our love, right? It's okay. We need to be here. You need to encourage others to get into God's word. There's so many more things we could do. I've just touched on a few, right? That huge redacted document that we could have gone into. Uh, let me invite you to, to ponder this as I, I'm going I'm to lead us in prayer, and we're just going to sing a hymn together. Uh, let me just invite you to bow your heads and, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, as we consider your word and how rich it is, how wise Peter was to fill the scriptures with it, I pray, Lord, that you would be walking with our hearts even this day as we seek to grow. Uh, Lord, I I know that our church has uh, a lot of folks who have um, been very comfortable. And I thank you, Lord, that you teach us you're not calling us to comfort, but you're calling us to obedience, to obey the truth, to resist sin, to resist false teaching, to treasure your word. Be with this church family, Lord. Help them to deal with this this passionate appeal to get into God's word and to see how Peter worked with God's word. Lord, we can't tell of you if we don't know you. We cannot love what we do not know. I pray that you would help us to grow in that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.